welcome back to the Brodacious Book Club, the podcast where we host a book club. And I haven't read the book. I'm your host, Aaron Rockford, and with me is my good, good bro, Matt Thomas. Hi. And uh, today we are joined by an extra special guest bro, Derek Kunskin. Hi, Derek. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. How are you doing? Good, good. I like what you've done with the place. (laughs) (laughs) As always, we will be reviewing a book and discussing through the various summaries of it. I've diverged entirely from our script. This is fine. I feel like you can just see the the wheels. It's fluid. (laughs) It's fluid. It's it's relatable. I often know nothing or very little about the books discussed, providing a sort of sounding board slash peanut gallery with occasional humorous bent. Basically, if I understand the book by the end of the podcast, so will you, and that means we've done our job. And today we are joined by Derek, who will hopefully give us some extra insight into our book of choice this week. Certainly. I also have realized that we didn't actually give any context for who Derek is. I guess I sort of assume anyone listening to this probably knows, but Derek, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. I'm a science fiction writer, uh, and I I live in Ottawa, so I've read Dune, but also I come at at it from like the the kind of person who realizes how influential it was in the field and like what it was trying to do and you know where it fits into things yes I was also lucky enough that a couple of my novels also appeared in Analog Magazine, which is the first place where Dune also appeared. So what? That's oh my very God. exciting. There's a bit of a connection there, distant, distant. <laughs> that is so and, cool. And Derek's novels are very good. If you're listening to this and somehow have not read any of them, you should check them out because mm. they're very good. <laughs> and yes, as Derek said, this week we are indeed reading Dune by Frank Herbert. I guess I should give our normal like spoiler warning. This book indeed. is like 50 years old. So I can't imagine there's a lot of people for whom that's going to be a huge concern. But spoilers, if you were not not wanting that, maybe maybe go read the book first and then come back and listen to our thoughts on it. That's right. And also just to say that we mean no disrespect to the books or the authors discussed mm-hmm. and always encourage reading the books for yourself, even though this one is a 600 page behemoth. Um, yes. <laughs> we yes. are not professional critics, just two people. Well, three people now yeah. who think that we are funny so sometimes sometimes. Uh, (laughs) but yeah uh, so kind of an interesting thing that we're doing uh for this one is Mm -hmm. um aaron has read dune derek has read dune i have not read dune (laughs) however i have watched the 1984 adaptation um (laughs) featuring sting and uh other guy picard patrick wilson patrick stewart not patrick wilson (laughs) (laughs) sir patrick stewart yeah so um which is of course the definitive version of dune certainly uh (laughs) lots to discuss lots to unpack so uh, i think that the the kind of format for today's episode is we're going to be uh reading through as we normally do aaron and derek providing commentary and background and the plot while i poke and prod and ask questions as well i will be weaving in oh, that didn't happen in the movie, or oh, that was different in the movie as we go. I guess without further ado? Without further ado, we yeah. We can get into it. Let's get in. So you want to start us off with some details about the author, when it was written, and, and maybe just dive right into the setting? And I'm directing this to both of you, both, <laughs> both our resident experts. Yeah, I mean, I have some just basic notes about Dune, which is that it was published uh, in 1965. Originally, it was published serially in Analog Magazine, as Derek has already alluded to. And interestingly enough, at the time, Analog Magazine was helmed by John W. Campbell, which we might get into because he was perhaps not the most on board with what Herbert was trying to do with Dune, but that's perhaps a debate for later and uh, something that we don't necessarily have official confirmation of. It is obviously a science fiction 
fiction novel. I believe it won the first Nebula Award ever mm, for wow. uh, Best Fiction. That's super novel, interesting. So. Noted. Um, yeah, so that's pretty cool. It has obviously been adapted many times, most notably starring Sting, although <laughs> most recently <laughs> starring Timothy Chalamet. That's right. They don't play the same role. Maybe I should make that clear for people say, who starring, haven't seen the original. Starring is a bit generous starring to Sting, is a bit generous but to fair Sting. enough. We all know Sting's the best part of that film. You're here. <laughs> but basically, if we go into sort of the setting to start with, it's like vaguely futuristic, I would say. I, I think it's called a... It's classified by most things I've seen as space opera. So like you've got this very, very large sort of galactic setting. Yeah. Even though the action happens on one planet, you've got a lot of context beyond that. So Yes. Yeah. And it's it's got sort of the um, like futuristic technology, but older, more kind of traditional political systems, like feudalistic, almost feudal mm -hmm. yeah. political systems, which again is pretty common in space operas. I don't know that we get a lot of information about the broader scope or I might have just missed some of that because it wasn't all that interesting to me but the the broad setting information is that there's the Imperium which is your standard galactic empire kind of thing right there's an em emperor from a line there's also a council and there's a corporate group called Choam. The Chong Company. Yeah, which also kind of represents the real power in that they decide how the resources and the land and planets and stuff get distributed, is my understanding. Okay. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. And I mean, the, the big piece, I think that, you know, like b the space bits can change, but the important thing is that to navigate through hyperspace, like to go faster than the speed of light, you need to have spice. Your navigator needs to take spice. Yes. And there's only one place in the galaxy where they can get spice. Yes. And that's on Arrakis. And so that's a big deal. Yes. I feel like those details get not lost in, there's just, there's a lot happening in Dune. <laughs> And so I feel like some of that aspect is like, it's helpful to state some of this outright because otherwise it gets mixed up in like the actual plot, which is not separated from that at all. But yeah, there's just a lot happening. <laughs> it, it There is. It's a super rich novel, right? I mean, it the politics are super involved. Yep. There's strong themes of environmentalism. There's strong themes of, you know, religion. There's strong themes of, of you know, the chosen one and fate. And then there's there's all these space opera things. So yeah. altogether, there's a lot. It's a super ambitious novel. It is. And there's, there's some interesting, like, colonialism stuff going on in there, too. Um, I mean, Arrakis with a resource that everyone is looking for <laughs> is mm -hmm. yeah, like the, the, the connection to like Iraq and the oil industry is not <laughs> a subtle one. Yeah. I mean, the spice itself is, it's a drug, which is a little bit different, obviously. And we'll get into more about the spice later, I'm sure. And then the other, the other sort of important galactic body, I guess, is the Bene Gesserit, which are a group of female spy nuns. Okay. <laughs> That was unclear to me <laughs> in the film, <laughs> who they were and what they were, so go ahead. Yeah, they're like politically powerful and like tied into the religion aspect, although that also confuses me a little bit how like 
I don't really understand how the religion works in the world of yeah. Dune. Yeah. So the people on Arrakis have a different religion and it's this jihadi religion. But the thing is the Bene Gesserit are around and they've, I guess they've been for 90 generations, they said. They've been breeding yes. different noble families to end up making some sort of super being. Yes, and these Bene Gesserit are around to assist the sort of noble rulers. And so almost every noble ruler has one of these Bene Gesserit wives or assistants or whatever to give them advice. I think the part that confuses me is that the, like, the people of Arrakis have their own religion, but it intersects with the Bene Gesserit yeah. to a certain extent. Like, they recognize the Bene Gesserit as having authority. So what I understood from the novel is that you've got the Bene Gesserit have gone to a lot of indigenous populations and have done missionary work where they leave a religion there Yes, with kind of secrets in it that people will know. But then if Bene Gesserit ever go back, they can use those like keys and they can then take advantage of those local populations. That makes sense. That makes sense. I think I didn't quite... I was like, is that... Is that what's happening? Is something else going on? It, it was a little bit unclear to me, but that yeah. makes sense. So. Yeah, it makes total sense. That's what I'd do if I had a religion. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what else do you do with a religion? Yeah, all this is fascinating. And I will add that I picked up none of that from the movie. Just yeah. off the top, one of the criticisms that I've heard of the 1984 adaptation is that if you haven't read the books, it is dififficult to follow. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thought. Have you, you've seen the movie, Derek, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So... so well, but only recently. Okay. I I am terrible at watching TV and movies. And so it took me till 2021, wasn't it, Aaron? That yeah. I finally watched. So like, that's 37 years I went without seeing it. Yes, wow. yes. Because we watched it on over Twitter together. Um, <laughs> that was fun. I think if you go to the hashtag, hashtag Dune Thoughts, you can find most of what we were talking about. <laughs> Love it. Um, but yeah, there were, some, <laughs> there were some good discussions. It is a very fun movie to watch. Yeah. And we have friends with lots of opinions on that movie. So they were jumping in too. <laughs> yeah. And that was great. Like, I think Matt Moore was also like, he also queued it up to watch. And we were all like... Yes. And Adam Shafto from near Toronto. And yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, funny. But, but I think like you, you mentioned the page count, it was like 600 pages, right? So if you've got a 120 page movie, that means you're trying to represent five pages per minute. Right. Um, and even a movie script is usually for a, a, a 120 minutes, a movie script, like with mostly white page is usually only 110 pages or something. Yeah. So yeah, they had to cut out a lot of exposition. Fair enough. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they, they do a lot of exposition through inner monologue, which is yeah. one way to do it, I guess. Mm -hmm. But also presented quite uh, I, I don't know. I, bizarrely, maybe isn't the, the the right word, but just jarringly, you know, like it took me a second to realize when their voices continued in the movie, but their their faces stopped moving. But this was inner monologue that I was watching. I was like, oh, okay, interesting to, that they chose to do it that way. But it's a very unique, like it's not a style of movie making that you see a lot today, too, which I yeah. think is part of it. But uh, but we have plenty of time to discuss the movie and yes. its merits. So <laughs> yes, moving right along. So at the beginning of the novel, uh, we talked about Arrakis as like the main actual setting of the novel, uh, this very important 
planet in the sense that it is the place that spice comes from. And the Harkonnen family has been in charge of Arrakis. Like they've been the stewards uh, for some number of years prior to the beginning of the novel. But a new steward has been appointed, I guess, by the emperor, Leto Atreides. Our main character is, of course, his son, Paul, which is a great name for a main character in in a space opera. The other thing, just before we get into like the actual nitty gritty of what happens, um, that just I think is interesting about the book is that every chapter begins with an excerpt from a book about Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan, and we'll learn more about her later. But I just I like that because it's an interesting world building element that we get these like pieces of of a future religious text sort of interspersed with the main narrative of the book. Does anyone have any comments to add before we get into the actual events of the novel? We're going to do the plot and then we're going to talk about our reaction to the novel after? Yes, that, okay. that, is, that is my thought. I love your thought. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we begin a week before the Atreides family is leaving for Arrakis and an old crone has come to visit Leto's concubine, Jessica, as well as Paul, who's 15 at this point, which kind of excuses how whiny he is for parts of this book. (laughs) And this old crone is uh, a reverend mother from the Bene Gesserit, and she is trying to figure out if Paul is the Kwisatz Haderach, (laughs) which is a, we're going to learn more about that later, but it's sort of a foretold person, a, a prophetized man. This is what the Bene Gesserit have been building for 90 generations. And so there's a good possibility that he might be. And so they're testing. Yes. And so Paul, this is this very famous scene where Paul has to put his hand in a box. Right. And he has to keep his hand in the box, even though it's painful. Somehow that's testing him. And that's when we get this the, the famous monologue about, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain, which is great. <laughs> And of course, he withstands the pain of the box, which I think is, proves that he's the Kwisatz Haderach. Not yet, but at least he's he passed a test that any child of Jessica as a Bene Gesserit, mm. like a full Bene Gesserit, would have had to have passed as well. Yeah, because there's like there's also a group of people called Mentats who have yeah. kind of similar powers to the Bene Gesserit, like mind powers. Yeah. Yeah, they're like calculators. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm a little bit unclear about how the... There's one world building element that we didn't mention yet. And that is at some time before the novel, like hundreds of years before the novel, they had had AIs, like machines that think. Mm-hmm. And there was some conflict and they made, like they wiped out all the machines that can think. And then they... Yes. They, they don't have sophisticated computers. So their navigators need to have this perceptual shift to navigate through hyperspace. <laughs> And these mentats are these like mm-hmm. like brainiac people, but they're biological. Yes, yeah, and and Paul, I think like they talk a little bit about how Paul has kind of the potential to become a mentat. I think he got training. Yeah, so he's got Benny Gesserit training, which he shouldn't have gotten. Plus, he got mentat training. Yes, plus all the Halleck training, Gurney Halleck training. Yes, <laughs> the the fighting training. Yes, the fighting. Okay, yeah. so so sorry, the the fighters are the Gurney. Gurney Halleck is Sir Patrick. Stewart in the, in the oh, right. 94 movie. Yes. 
He's he's the bard. Yes, he's yeah. He also is a bard. Okay, good to know. Noted. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, he's a bard specializing in swords. Yes, I see. <laughs> <laughs> to put it in Dungeons and Dragons terms, right? And we, I think, we learn at this point in the novel that the Kwisatz Haderach is so. The Bene Gesserit are able to access memories from their past, like from past generations, Mm -hmm. but they can only access the memories of, or mostly only access the memories from female predecessors. Yeah, only. I say mostly because I think his sister can access some of her male, but she's kind of a specific case. Anyway, that's... I don't think she can access male memories. Maybe not. The whole trick of it is the Kwisatz cataract, whatever it is, <laughs> is he, he can access the male side. And that's, yes. that's going to be the big difference. Yes, because because he has an X and a Y chromosome, which I'm not sure that that's how that works, but that's okay. He can access memories stored in both chromosomes. Okay. I, again, I'm like, I'm not sure that that's how chromosomes work, but that's okay. Cannot confirm nor um, deny. Cannot so, confirm nor deny. So I did study genetics. And what's interesting is there are lots and lots of things that are only passed on the maternal line, right? Mm-hmm. So the egg has all of the mitochondria. So all of the sort of genetic memory of the mitochondria only comes from your mother, no matter what you do. And so, yeah. but this is, you know, he was writing this before that was known, but it's interesting that there are those, you know, reflections. Yeah, that is, that is interesting, especially like, yeah, it's interesting to think about how much science has moved, like how much more we know since the 60s. Yeah. But I, I think that also the sort of gendered powers that are there mm. make for an interesting conversation about the way gender is used there. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's definitely interesting, especially because like, I find Jessica to be probably the most interesting character in this novel. Mm. Like we learn at some point at, that she was supposed to have a female child and there was this whole Bene Gesserit plan Mm-hmm. That she was going to have a daughter and they were going to marry her, I think, to Sting, possibly. Oh. Um, okay. The, the character played by Sting. Yes. If he's the Fade character, yeah. Yes. And, like, that was going to make the Kwisatz Haderach. But instead, she had a boy and that's kind of screwed up their plans a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, next chronologically we meet our villain, uh, Baron Harkonnen, who have some issues with the depiction of Baron Harkonnen. He's very much like this fat phobic, homophobic stereotype in that he's like this predatory gay man, it, or at least how he's depicted, I guess. I don't. They don't identify him as gay, but he sort of preys on younger men. I think it's pretty, like you're on, I, I don't think it's much beneath the surface. Yeah, which is like, ugh, it's not, not great. And I think they've cut that from a lot of the adaptations because they're like, this is not aged maybe mm-hmm. the best. Mm-hmm. He wants to depose Leto. He wants to become steward of, mm-hmm. of Arrakis again. He also has a tendency for killing his underlings. He's got a mentat, uh, Peter de Vries. Oh, um, oh, so he was the, meant to be a... Okay. Yeah, who's the creepy guy with the blue eyes. And the eyebrows. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. and the okay. eyebrows. He does I remember have him. very, very good eyebrows in yeah. the, <laughs> the 84 movie. Sure does. Looks like a hobbit, kind of. He kind of does a little yeah. bit, yeah. And we learn that Paul is having, like, prophetic dreams at this point. He keeps seeing a girl over and over who calls him Usul. As, as they, they move to Arrakis, we meet various people who are in the Atreides household, including Gurney Halleck, who's, like I said, played by Sir Patrick Stewart. Also in the book. Also in the book, yes. <laughs> what happens is they get there, but the Harkonnens have left a trap. Yes. That basically they're trying to wipe out the mm-hmm. family in a sort of godfather, you know, baptismal scene. Yes. 
and, and they're helped by the emperor himself, who shouldn't be getting yes. into these interhouse wars. So nobody knows what's going on. And so basically, Paul and his mom manage to survive and get away. Yes. His dad is killed. Arrakis is under Harkonnen control. And then that feels to me like, oh my God, the start of the book sort of thing. Yes, but we, we take quite a while to get there. Quite a while. Because <laughs> there's all this stuff with the guy who is planning to betray Leto, uh, Dr. Yue. And we get quite a bit of world building, a little bit about the, the freemen who are like the native people of Arrakis. And we get to know Leto like decently well because he wants to tap into the freemen as a resource, like to make them into an army. It seems like he's definitely more open to engaging them rather than just ruling them than the Harkonnens were. He also doesn't super think that the threats against him are correct. Like everyone's like, well, the Harkonnens don't like you very much and want to wipe you out. And he's like, eh, it's probably fine. Mm. Nothing to worry mm. about. I thought he probably was not suspecting, though, that the Emperor was in on it, too. If yes. the Emperor had not been in on it, I think he could have handled the Harkonnens. Very possibly, yes. Because they, they really don't... I seem to remember that he gets away with it pretty... Like, Harkonnen gets, like, does the, the whole takeover fairly easily, all things considered. Like, Yue just kind of finds him in the hallway and, and captures him. And that's, mm. that's that. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so quick question. Yes. Um, do we know why the Emperor was involved? Because I understand that uh, the, the, the Harkonnens had to leave because there's a new steward of Arrakis that the Emperor named as the Atreides house. Yes. But he had an ulterior motive. What's the... So so when I was listening to the book today, I, the section I was listening in revealed that the Emperor had been worried about Leto Atreides, who had trained a military force that was almost as good in quality as the Emperor's force. Yes. I see. Okay. And he was getting very popular. I see. Yes. And so he was basically taking off a potential rival. Yes. That checks out. And also just a reference to the movie. You mentioned that there was this, uh, that almost corporate wing of the imperial government that Mm -hmm. uh, dealt with land allocations and resource management. Is that the group of people in the 1984 adaptation who come into the emperor's palace and are all dressed in black and like shaven head, have weird pipes and tubes going out of their heads? I think so. Yeah. And they're like threatening the emperor, like, you better do this. Yeah, I think those were the navigators. Okay. That might be the Chome Company. So I'm not sure because the I found the 84 movie to be sort of inferior to the book. Yes. It's very confusing. Yeah. And and so I, I took it sort of as the way you would watch, you know, 1966 Batman. It's like, <laughs> oh, look, damn, you know, that's very interesting. But it's it's like a pastiche almost of Dune. So I don't know. Yeah. Fair enough. There's, there's a couple other characters that we meet early in the book that are interesting and important. Uh, one of whom is Stilgar, who is the leader of sort of the Freeman, or at least one of the Freeman tribes. Yeah. And he and Leto, they meet and seem to respect each other. And that's that's going to be important later. And there's there's a line about Leto that he's trying to kind of rule with the consent of the governed, which is an interesting phrase to use in a non-democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also meet Duncan Idaho, who maybe has the silliest <laughs> name in a in a book full of characters with silly names, who I feel like gets a lot made of, and then has very little to actually do in this book. Who is Duncan Idaho? I don't think anyone famous played him in the old movie. Sure. Um, He's played by Jason Momoa in the new one. So that's fun. Um, And we also meet Dr. Liet Keynes, 
who is also a Freeman man. He's like half Freeman. Yeah, and he's, I think, has respect within the Freeman community. Very much. But also works for the Empire. He's an ecologist and he was like sort of educated, I think was the vibe I got by the Empire. So his his dad was the imperial ecologist before him, and I guess got together with a Fremen woman, mm-hmm. and then now Kynes is the imperial ecologist as well. Yes. We, we meet him again. He, I think, is working for the emperor. Like, he plans to betray Leto, but ends up liking Leto because they there's a random sandworm attack, <laughs> and Leto is more concerned about the loss of the men than the loss of the spice. Mm. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, that's okay. that's in the movie too, I believe. So those are two two important people. I, I don't think it's a random worm attack. Well, possibly. Just because one of the things on the planet is basically the worms are drawn to any sort of vibration that's not natural. Yeah. So the thing is, while they're out mining spice in the middle of the desert, mm-hmm. that's not natural. And so it, it's like magnet for worms fair enough yes i guess sometimes i feel like when i'm writing the notes for this like i'm taking notes for summary as i'm reading the book and sometimes i will leave out details and so it's just kind of like oh there's a worm attack okay sure (laughs) yeah so we finally kind of get to the like whole kidnapping overthrowing of the atreides family by the harkonnens this dr ua who nobody had suspected as the spy comes and shoots leto with a dart to knock him out i think we get the backstory at some point during all of this preamble that Yue's wife had been kidnapped, right. killed yeah. by the Harkonnens, and that's why he's betraying the Atreides. And in order to sort of get his revenge, he puts a poison-filled tooth inside of Leto's mouth so that Leto can bite down on the tooth and hopefully kill Baron Harkonnen. And he says that he'll help make sure that Paul and Jessica escape. And he does. And he does. He, he does fulfill that. I think he immediately gets stabbed once he meets up with Yue, immediately gets stabbed. But, but yes, he does help Paul and Jessica escape. To a certain extent, Jessica does have to use something called the voice, which the Bene Gesserit have in order to kind of get their captors to free her and Paul, which is portrayed in the 84 movie, I think, as her speaking in like a weird hissing exactly. tone, yeah. which is parcel not... Time. Like parcel tone? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> which is not how I had pictured it Okay. in the book. How is it described in the book? I don't recall specifically how it's described, but I had kind of pictured it as more alluring because she, in the book at least, she says to them like, oh, you both want me really badly. Like you mm-hmm. should fight each other to get me kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's probably just Hollywood dumbing stuff down. Yeah. No, in the, in the book, it's just, you know, basically the Bene Gesserit, for, you know, a very short period of time can basically mm-hmm. tell you what to do and you'll do it. Yes. Okay, so that's interesting. I And this is probably my own deficiency uh, while watching it, but I did not get that that was a power of the Bene Gesserit. I thought that that was a power of like House Atreides or something like oh, that. Oh, no. So, so that's interesting. Good to make that distinction. Yeah. Thank you for it. Yeah, and so the Bene Gesserit are these basically priest women and... The other person who can do this is is uh, Paul. Yes. Right. The, the Quizarts Cataract, maybe. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, not he can do it before he discovers he's the Quizarts 
Satterat. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> his mom trained him. Yes. Oh, his, okay. So hence yeah. the, the, the Benny Gesserit training that you were referencing earlier. Yes. When, when we get to it later, Aaron, I'm going to basically say that Jessica is like Qui-Gon Jim. She is a little bit. And Paul is basically Obi-Wan as a Padawan. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I see that. I see that. No, that makes sense. I'm curious to hear why you make that parallel precisely to Qui-Gon. I, it may be just because I just watched the first three Star Wars movies, but <laughs> fair enough. But also I was thinking about, and we can get into this later, but I was thinking about the gender roles, like for 1963 and 1965, you know, that mm-hmm. was the time when, you know, my aunt is pregnant, therefore she was fired sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And like women did not have, like think of where, you know, Uhura, like having her on the bridge as a woman was like a gigantic mm-hmm. thing in 1966. And so to have these women, to have this much political power and, and this much agency in a story was actually you know pretty like it it was it was a thing that would have raised eyebrows Mm -hmm. and so while I was thinking of that I was thinking you know what are the limitations on their power and everything else well it has to be with women and and so it's like a a Jedi cast that can only be fulfilled by women or Mm -hmm. the Quetzal's uh Cuisinart. Interesting. <laughs> the Cuisinart <laughs> cataract. That's right. So Leto gets brought before Baron Harkonnen and bites down on this tooth and releases the poison, which kills a bunch of people, but Harkonnen manages to escape, of course. But Leto Atreides dies that way, which is kind of interesting, I guess, from a like story standpoint. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he was going to be killed either way, but that he gets to kind of bring about his own mm-hmm. death rather than just getting like shot or something. It's neat agency too. It is. It is, and it feels like an un- like an unusual thing because obviously, like the death of the father figure is a pretty well established trope in mm-hmm. like all kinds of stories. But I feel like him getting to yeah have that agency is an unusual character feature. But back to Paul and Jessica, who are now in the desert. UA arranged so that they are able to meet up with Duncan Idaho again, who helps them escape. And there's some interesting stuff where he has trouble mourning his dad and feels bad about the fact that he can't really feel sad about his father dying. Mm. He thinks of himself as a monster and a freak. And he also kind of is mad at his mother for like giving birth to him specifically to make a Kwisatz Haderach. Mm. And his powers are awakening more and more at this point. We get the plot twist that Jessica is actually Harkonnen's daughter, again, because of various Bene Gesserit. I love that look on your face there, that that reveal. Yeah, that was new to me. Okay, so I I did not pick that up either. Oh my gosh. But for our listeners, my jaw just dropped a little bit when Aaron said that. It was spectacular. (laughs) I do not remember if that's in the 84 movie or not. It probably was, but you know, is what it is. (laughs) Moving right along. I think they probably saved on script space by cutting that out. Fair enough. Very possibly. But that's interesting. Yeah, okay. it's something that doesn't necessarily go anywhere. Like, there isn't a lot... Like, in terms of things you could cut without it necessarily having a huge impact on the plot, it's, it's up there. Mm. I wonder if that was in there for a few of the, like... The Bene Gesserit plan was to unite the two noble houses. Yes. So there would be no war. 
And when they shacked up, they would get a yes. Kwisatz Burt Bacharach. <laughs> the thing is, by Jessica having a boy, mm-hmm. you have to have an explanation as an author of, well, why could she do that? And it's, well, she also has Harkonnen blood in her. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. That makes sense. Yeah, they're they're inbred like uh, 18th century royalty. Yeah, right. it's it's yeah, it's a little bit troubling, but right. we yeah, we don't have to go into that. No. <laughs> we also don't need to talk about the part where Harkonnen has a drugged young man brought to his room, and it's mentioned that he wants the young man to look like Paul. That's we don't need to go into that. Is that um, the movie? I don't remember that no, that's either. Not the movie. That was another like this should be a video podcast just for the facial expressions of surprise. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Oh my gosh. I don't know if that was a compliment. Uh, that's a habit of mine. I, no, but I mean, if if you're going to make a villain, that's... Oh yeah. You know, they, they made a sexual predator, oh, yeah. period. Like fat phobia and homophobia aside. Yeah. A sexual predator is a very, like, it's a villain that there's no redemption. Everybody in the audience right. is like, oh my God, that man has to suffer. Yes. Yeah. You, you don't have too many. You know, there, there aren't really a lot of people writing about like villain redemption stories for Baron Harkonnen. No. No. That would be a really weird fanfic subculture. I wonder, I've never looked into what the fanfiction situation is with regards to Dune. I wonder what it is like. I'm sure there is a robust fanfiction community <laughs> for Dune. I'm especially now after Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya. Oh, well, yeah. Come on. Once you get them into it, certainly other 100%. people are, are picking up on that. But 100%. But I don't know how many uh, Harkonnen stands there would be out there. Probably know? not a lot. Probably not a lot. Yeah. It's probably everyone shipping Paul and Fade Rautha. That's going to be yeah. him and the right. Sting character. Right. Yeah, I oh, bet no. is the... Anyway. And Paul, at this point, is kind of able to see the future to a certain extent. He's able to see like that they're going to go to the Fremen, and Jessica is pregnant with a sister for him, and that the Fremen are going to call him Muadib, which means the one that points the way. And I think at this point, he also starts to have premonitions of sort of this holy war, which end up scaring him quite a bit. There's also this whole subplot of around this character named Thufir Hawat, who was Leto Atreides' mentat, which, again, kind of doesn't go anywhere but he gets captured by the emperor's men and taken to harkonnen and spends the rest of the novel with them well the the thing is as they kill leto to cause further confusion among the atreides they say oh it was jessica that yes tipped them all off and so that turns the mentat against yes there's also a part that leto was letting people believe that he thought jessica was yeah. a spy before he was killed right. for confusing political reasons that, that that part got it went from space opera to soap opera a little mm-hmm. bit just that subplot yeah like it it's not necessarily needed for the the story yeah yeah. So there's there's all there that that's a, this is what I mean when I say there's a lot happening in Dune. <laughs> so Jessica and Paul reunite with Duncan Idaho and they also reunite with Dr. Keynes who likes that Paul wants to like help the Fremen and avoid sort of a total war scenario and promises that he's going to try and convince the Fremen to help Paul. And then they're attacked by the Emperor's men and uh, Idaho is killed and Keynes is captured. And when we when we catch back up with Harkonnen, we learn that he is trying to put his nephew, Fade Rotha, who's the character played by Sting in the 84 movie, which is the best part of the film. That's right. In a very, very strange bikini, but we don't need to go into it. Yeah, Pict- Pictured here. 
It's, it is a shame that this is not a video podcast. Because we cannot put this image up. No. Well, you might lose your PG rating. For we real. Might, we yeah. might lose the PG rating. That is quite the bikini. <laughs> it's like a Speedo with like little wings on it. That's yes. exactly it right. Is- well described. <laughs> well remembered. I was going to say, I like that you remember that from <laughs> like from a year ago. Yeah. yeah. Just- no, no, but it's like a classic image. It's memeable. And- True. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And I was telling Aaron just before mm-hmm. that it gave me uh, the same vibes as David Bowie and Labyrinth. Oh, same year, wasn't it? The similar go. year, yeah, for yeah. sure. I gotta say, the, the fact that that masterpiece came out the same year as the 1984 Dune just is, again, uh, a scathing condemnation of the graphics <laughs> in Dune. and The, the special effects are not the, the, the special best. effects are not the best. No, I think they did okay with the worms, though. The worms were awesome. I prefer the worms oh, in the 1984 one. I like, yeah. I like the try, like yeah, the three. I agree. I don't know how to describe this. The, the mouth. The mouth. There's yeah. like three parts to the mouth as opposed to three flaps yeah yeah flaps flaps the mouth flaps thank you yes Yes. exactly derek except as opposed to the the modern day worms who are just circular yeah yeah it's like yeah we've we've seen that from what i've seen in the trailers i haven't seen the movie yeah it's sort of a um sarlacc oh i'm gonna see it this weekend oh you're seeing it this weekend okay I think so, yeah. You will have to let us know how it is. Yes, please do. <laughs> yeah, I've got a vaccine passport uh, ready it. to go. Nice. And- Very good. And there's also this kind of confusing, again, getting into like weird, there's like complicated politics happening in the novel, which is that there's Fade Rautha, who Harkonnen wants, who's Harkonnen's nephew, and he wants Fade Rautha to become like the next steward of Arrakis. And in order to do that, he gets his other nephew, Rabin, to terrorize the people of Arrakis so that Fade Rautha can like come in as a savior figure. Mm. Yeah, good cop, bad cop. Yeah, it seems a little bit needlessly convoluted, <laughs> but... Oh, it, it is. Like, that's a whole subplot you can cut yes. out. And you can also cut out the subplot of Fade trying to kill his uncle. And like, Yeah, like, there's... <laughs> the, the main spine of the story ultimately rests with Paul and and his story, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But there's all this other stuff going on at the same time. Paul and Jessica continue to head for the Fremen. They're being really careful because they can't walk for long stretches or else the vibrations will alert the sandworms. Then they meet the Fremen. Yeah. <laughs> and then they meet the Fremen pretty much. And and then we get into the white savior trope. Yes, we do get into the white savior right, trope. Right, yeah. Um, that was pretty clear in the movie. I'll say that yes, much. Yes, There's some stuff in there too where Dr. Keynes is bleeding out in the desert. I don't quite remember how he gets there. Uh, the Harkonnens caught him, took off his still suit, and left him in the desert. Okay, mm. which is the the still suit is like the thing that it like recycles all your water. Yeah, recycles your water. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> which is the thing that you would need if you're on a desert planet. Mm-hmm. We we learn sort of in his internal monologue that he was able to get word to the Fremen to accept Paul, mm-hmm. and then he's killed by something called a spice blow, which is an explosion from un- an underground reserve of spice, mm. um, and there's an interesting line about him being killed by his planet which i just thought was kind of a an interesting turn of phrase and wrote mm-hmm. it down but yeah paul and jessica come across some free men who are being led by stilgar which is convenient because he knows who paul is they also meet uh Ch- chani shani chani <laughs> chani who's dr Keynes's daughter and she is the girl that paul has been seeing in his visions and obviously there's sort of immediately a an attraction there if i had visions of a girl and then i met her love at first sight is way easier fair <laughs> enough yeah 
<laughs> and if she's played by Zendaya, like, what can you do? I don't know who that is, but I guess I'll see on the weekend. I guess you'll there see, you yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Jessica ends up agreeing to teach the Fremen to fight in, like, the Bene Gesserit way, because they're not really sure about her worthiness at first. Mm-hmm. One of them challenges Jessica, and Paul has to fight as her champion. Well, first first of all, Jessica wipes the floor with Stilgar, yes. who is the best fighter. Oh, yes, that too. Which, which, again, as a gender role thing, is so cool, because yeah. he's yeah. like, I'm the toughest fighter in the crowd, and she's like, whoop, now I've got a, yeah. neck, a knife to your neck. And I don't remember why Paul has to fight as her champion against this this guy who challenges her. I think... I don't think they explained it, but I felt it was one of those areas where they had fenced off gender roles to a more 1960s audience and said, okay, yes, she can kick his butt, but on a formal challenge, it's got to be boy boy against boy. Yeah. And he kills this other man, which he has to do. It's like a fight to the death situation. And he becomes like that, that sort of proves his initiation into the Fremen. Stilgar gives him the name Usul, which means base of the pillar. And Paul asks to be named after one of these jumping mice that are around, which means that he becomes Paul Muad'Dib, which is kind of his way of trying to depart from the visions he's been having, kind of assert his own control over his destiny, I guess. And there's an interesting scene where Paul, at the funeral for this man that he killed, Paul sheds tears and people are shocked about the waste of the water. Which is a high honor. It's it's worth telling right now that like the culture that the Fremen have mm-hmm. around the water discipline is a really nicely done piece of mm-hmm. world building and culture building. So mm-hmm. you've got the still suit, which takes all of your thing. And then all of their metaphors are around water. Their economy mm-hmm. is around water. And, and so it's it's really well done. And so when you get to the funeral and somebody actually sheds a tear, that's like one of the most biggest things you can do is waste yes. water on somebody who's already dead. Yes. So nicely done. Yeah. And it's, it, again, sort of as an interesting way that his relationship with them develops. They begin to recognize him as uh, Lisan Al-Gaib, which means like an off-world prophet. Al-Gaib, I think it's pronounced. Al-Gaib. Yes. Probably. Because I listened to the audiobooks, so just going off what the reader did. Yes. <laughs> yeah, do feel free to, to correct any of my pronunciation. He also has to take responsibility for the wife and the children of the man that he killed hmm. for a year, which again is sort of an interesting development of their culture. There's also a bit of a weird thing where he decides to take her as a servant rather than as a lover, like as a mistress. But he's also like, can I change my mind later? Which... Paul, like, come on. Well, to, to be fair, you're 15. Your mom is right there. Yeah. <laughs> you just inherited this 30-year-old woman. Yeah. like, well. Yeah. Plus, you just met your girlfriend. I was going to say, your girlfriend's standing right there, too. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, look, I, I know it's an awkward situation. I don't. Fault Paul any of what that happened. <laughs> and then they meet, I believe, with a reverend mother who uh, of the Bene Gesserit who has been like staying with the Fremen, I guess. I think it's she's a reverend mother. Yeah. She's not Bene Gesserit, but she is okay. one of the, the like she uses these chemicals of the spice plus some of okay. them that the Bene Gesserit left behind. And so Jessica's able to be like, oh, I know this word and I know this word and I know how the... So she's able to take over okay. as Reverend Mother. Yeah, because that kind of confused me because they use Reverend Mother to refer to the Bene Gesserit as well. And so I was like, is yeah, this yeah. woman Bene 
great gesture at what's happening. Mm-hmm. But it, it resolves in the scene where Jessica takes the water of life, which is either going to expand her consciousness or kill her. And in the process, she purifies it. Mm-hmm. Matt and I are both unsure of how this, how and why this right. works. Yeah. You see me here just furiously yeah. <laughs> scribbling notes. So, so as in what? As in like, like, how does she do it? Or, or the purification? Yeah. yeah so the, the well, she's a cleric, basically. Yeah. Right? So she's a ninth level cleric. <laughs> she can purify food and drink. Right. Yeah. So I thought that's how she okay. did it. Okay. Fair, Fair enough. Fair enough. I guess I wasn't sure if there was anything more to that, or if it was just like so, she purified the water through this ritual. Yeah. So in the in the fifties and forties and sixties, the editor of Analog Campbell was very interested in psychic nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> and um, okay. he would encourage his writers to, you know, include that. And so I'm not surprised that he would have ended up picking something where Fair psychic enough. powers play such a big deal. But he does it in a sort of hard SF way because it's like she uses her psychic powers to change the molecules of the poison into something that's not poisonous. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Mm. So that that's the kind of like mechanical explanation yes. I was looking for. I yes. appreciate that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was totally, they're changing the molecules one by one. Through, through her mind powers. And she also absorbs the Reverend Mother's spirit. Right. So, so in this, I think there was something the Bene Gesserit, you know, 18th level priestess yeah. does when, you know, she dies in a 17th level becomes mm-hmm. an 18th level. They get, you're right, their memories, but she's never done this before. Yes. And they're doing it now and they didn't know she was pregnant. It's not just her that gets the memories, mm-hmm. but her fetus that yes. gets the memories of like 40 priestesses of generations going back. Right. Yes. Which is amazing in the book later on. Uh, yes. You've got this four-year-old knife fighter. Yeah. Right. It's great. Yes. <laughs> she she converts the water so that it's no longer toxic, and the Fremen drink it, which gets them high, as far as I can tell. And they have something called a spice orgy, which sounds like a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, Derek? <laughs> uh, yes. So what I wanted to say was... Let's put a pin in this thing where she detoxifies the poison. Yes. Because that's a particular test to show that she's actually Benny Gesserit. Yes. And later on, Paul does it too to see if he's the Kwisatz Cuisinart. Right. Yes. And so the thing is that's that's important. We those those tent pole, the sort of mm-hmm. proof along with that box in the hand thing. Okay. Yes. Okay. So those are the three testing things. And the the orgy's interesting. Like, not for sexual reasons, because he doesn't <laughs> describe anything. But it's interesting because there's some sort of psychic connection with people, like a very light empathic connection. Yes. Hmm. Yes. While they're under the, the, the influence of the drug. Yeah, because it's clear it isn't just like a sexual thing. There is also, yeah, this sort of yeah heightened empathy, sharing consciousness sort of aspects to what happens during the orgy. I, I, I will say too, for thematic reasons, another parenthesis here is, mm-hmm. so Paul gets this like 30-year-old woman who like could be his consort or could not. Yeah. He also later gets together with the princess... Aralon and he gets Cheney and he's also in this orgy thing, but he, he never goes for anybody other than Cheney. Yes. Right. 
he's he's monogamous all the way through, yeah. which was an interesting. I wonder if that is partly 60s hero building in the same way as building the Harkonnen guy, mm-hmm. you know, throwing in everything that was bad in the 60s yes. that like, they could think of. Whereas here, they're like, he's got a lot of conscience. He doesn't want to start a holy war. Yeah. He's only going to be with one girl. He's going to listen to his mom. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Although his mom is also like, maybe don't, commit yourself to this girl that you met at 15 and he's like (laughs) absolutely not (laughs) because his mom not that she doesn't like cheney but she definitely tries to kind of warn him off of her i think she's aware though of sort of the political implications of a marriage and how important that may be to a survival Mm. later yes yes and in the end she's right yeah (laughs) as most moms are yes Mm -hmm. yes but we'll put a pin in the that that part because we're going to come back to that then we get to the there's a time jump which i believe is two years okay and we we catch up with harkonnen first who's talking about a prophet rising among the fremen who of course is paul and then he has a baby sister who's now two but can talk yes can talk and she's yeah has other things going on with her and paul sort of is having some trouble telling the present apart from possible futures like he's kind of getting lost in the sauce a little bit here um (laughs) proverbial sauce (laughs) you know the the fremen are coming to see him more and more as a prophet he and chani have a son that they have called leto the second and then we also meet uh alia alia uh, Alia, I think I've heard it. Alia, who is Paul's sister, who, like we have been talking about, also absorbed the memories of these previous generations of Bene Gesserit. Uh, and so is just this very strange child. Uh, and the people don't really trust her. They kind of think she's a witch. She is a witch. I yeah, mean, well, I mean, it's not... the witch. Not inaccurately. I was going to say, and if you're categorizing her as a witch, then aren't all the Bene Gesserit kind of witches as well? Yeah. Right? Where yeah. do you draw that line? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Also, well... But this one's really weird. Yeah, definitely. I'm just going to say as well, this has made, like, now walking <laughs> through the plot has made the movie so much clearer. Yeah. So I definitely, I, I, I understand the criticism that if you haven't read the book or had it explain to you um <laughs> then the movie will be difficult to watch the, yes. the 1984 version at least oh my gosh there it's- were parts where i had trouble following the movie and i had read the book Fair so enough. you know Fair enough, but Aaliyah is like oddly oddly advanced for her age like she not just that she knows a lot but she has abilities to like speak and whatnot bef- like that a two-year-old should not have i also have in my notes here then they go ride some worms <laughs> Right. Which, is, Which is a test of not adulthood, but adolescence yeah. for the Fremen. Yes. And it's just a good scene mm-hmm. uh, in the movie. Especially, uh, was is a fun, fun moment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, again, like a plot thread going on where there's a worry about Paul and Stilgar potentially having to fight for control of the Fremen. Because according to their traditions, like the way that you become the new leader is you kill well, you defeat in battle the previous leader. Yeah, and it does, like, we saw that when he killed Jamie, yeah. right? And then he got Jamie's family. Yeah. He didn't want to kill, and then they said right there, that's the way it is. Yes. So they set that up early, and now they, they're setting it up as, like, how does he get to keep Stilgard? Yes, which I don't remember if they resolve that here or later on, that he's 
It's it's later on. Yeah. When Halleck comes back and then he takes over as Duke of the whole planet. Yes. Then he says that Stilgar is going to be my man. Yeah, because he still needs someone to take over the Fremen like leadership. Yeah. Because he's going to go become an emperor, I guess. He's going to be Ducal. He's going to be Ducal, yes. Yeah, and it's around this time that they reconnect with Gurney Halleck, who's fallen in with some spice smugglers, I believe. And he thought Paul was dead. Right. Uh, he also thinks that Jessica was the traitor and uh, tries to kill her. Her. Paul gives this uh, uh, impassioned speech about sort of values of Atre the Atreides house. And there's this kind of odd moment in it where Jessica begs Paul to kind of choose his own happiness over this sort of grand plan. Which means she loves him. Yes, because she is his mother. Good it's mom. sort of her, yeah, her choosing like her motherhood over any of the other mm. things going on. Mm. Paul is unsettled. There's also Gurney plays a song because he's the bard. Um, <laughs> Paul is a bit unsettled by some of the things happening that he didn't foresee in his visions. And I think this is what drives him to drink the water of life to, again, try and transform it. And he manages to convert the water, but he passes out for three weeks in doing that. Huh. And eventually Jessica and Chani are able to revive him. But again, it's this whole thing. Reverse Sleeping Beauty. Yes, a little bit. <laughs> because mom couldn't wake him up. And yes. even like with all her Qui-Gon Jinn powers. And yet yes. when the true love comes along. That's true. And it's like, buddy, get up. Definitely didn't take three weeks in the movie. Took, <laughs> took about like 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone was just lying in. Well, in Hollywood, chop chop. That's right, yeah, absolutely. Like, I feel like the movie also really speeds through the last yeah. bit of the book. Well, well that's it. This It's really interesting. So the time skip, I actually, I was watching it a few nights ago, and I paused it at the time skip, and I went to bed, and I finished it the next day, because there was, it was only half an hour left yeah. at the time skip, right? Yeah. Um, so. but, I, but I feel like the the... They can because mm -hmm. the, the politics and the religion and everything yes. else was set up and it took about half of yes. the book to set all that up. But a lot of it is solved by action yes. and fisticuffs at the end. And so I feel like I haven't read the subsequent books, but now I'm going <laughs> to. So I feel that those things are going to those themes are going to be explored more, but they definitely weren't finished in, in this yes, book. Yes, yes. No. And that's I also have not read any of the other books. We can maybe talk a little bit more about that as we get afterwards. As in we'll talk about books we haven't read. Well, I mean, <laughs> talk, talk about the ways in which my understanding is that they sort of expand some of the, the themes but i am totally here for speculating on things i have not read <laughs> paul now that he's drank the water um i don't know if it expanded his awareness i think is sort of generally the implication i got to me it was his phoenix yes. uh, dark phoenix moment right like that was the thing that unlocked the full quizettes like seeing all of the Benny Gesserit generations back, but on the male side and the female side. Yes, yes. There's there's a description of him as the fulcrum between the taking force and the giving force, hmm. which is again an interesting interesting with the gender dynamics. Mm -hmm. And he's able to see that the emperor is arriving, and the all of the great houses of the empire are there as well. And so that that's sort of the cue to go off and face the climax of the of the of the book go to face the emperor and there's a there's a sandstorm that whips up that sort of splits up the party pretty significantly and alia is captured and paul's son is murdered by rabin harkonnen's eviler nephew i guess uh, yeah like 
level three assassin nephew. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bad cop who, I, like, I, I think of as being very similar to like the mountain from Game of Thrones. If that comparison means anything to anyone, yeah, probably. Sure. Well, I mean, and he was tough enough to take out a two-year-old boy. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we we get sort of this room with Harkonnen and the Emperor and the Reverend Mother, who was from the beginning, uh, Princess Irulan, who's the Emperor's daughter. She's there too. And Al- Alia is brought out to them. I love that scene. Yeah, and people are like, what is up with this child? And she stabs Harkonnen with the Gonjabar, yeah. which is the like, poisoned knife thing. So so in the audiobooks, it's amazing <laughs> because like, you've got these male voice actors who are reading the whole book, and then they've got to do this four-year-old girl voice, <laughs> but creepy. And so they're like, goodbye, grandfather. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Yeah, I bet, I bet. Yeah, it's it's just wild. And the Emperor flees. Yeah. And Paul is able to take over the governor's mansion and asks for the Emperor's surrender. And I think at this point he's starting to talk about like, oh, he's gonna marry Irulan mm-hmm. for like the political alliance of marrying the princess. And Chani arrives and she tells him that their son is dead, and he says that oh he cannot be replaced, which is kind of funny given that I happen to know that they name their second son, Leto, as well, Ooh. <laughs> which is a little bit awkward. Yeah. So the Emperor enters, and uh, Fade Rautha Sting is there with him, and also this character named Count Fenrig that we don't have time to get into. Sure. <laughs> Although what we can say that's neat about him is he was almost a Kwisatz Hammerat. Yes. That, yeah, again, it's like, there's some interesting stuff with him, but there's so much happening that we do not have time to go into it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Powett, who, if we remember, was Leto's mentat, he's there too. Right. And he's supposed to, yes. he's supposed to poison Paul, that's what the Emperor orders. But he realizes the error of his ways and doesn't, and then immediately dies, as is the way of these things. And Paul threatens to destroy the spice production mm-hmm. in order to kind of get his way, to get the fleet to disband. Mm-hmm. And then Fade Rafa challenges Paul to a to a match of a one on one fight, mm-hmm. and you you described this to me earlier as like a sharks versus the jets, very much so, knife very fight. much so, yeah. And Paul wins obviously and kills Fade Rafa, and uh, he realizes that he hasn't been able to change really any of his visions, and that the holy war that he was afraid of is still going to happen. Um, it's referred to as a jihad, which is really fascinating for multiple reasons. Oh, and the the this Count Fenrig character, he also considers trying to kill Paul, but some something about the fact that he was almost a Kwisatz Haderach, like, saves Paul, like, stops him from making an attempt. The Emperor is going to be sent to the prison planet. They sort of do the whole resolution, which is a little bit anticlimactic, in my opinion. It, it is. I think... So, the climax is... Ought to be, the emotional climax ought to be that Paul beats the emperor yeah. and gets his way. And yet they decided to put something more exciting in there, which was a knife yeah. fight, which <laughs> doesn't affect the plot at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, it's the first time Paul and Fade Rautha have met. So there isn't really any emotional tie yeah. there. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit strange. Again, I, I wonder if there was editorial input there. <laughs> um, there might have been. Apparently the... The serialization in 1963 was very much expanded and put, and so 
Yeah, it'd be interesting to read those. Phoebe might have those issues. It would be. I wonder. I wouldn't be surprised if she had those. Yeah, should ask her. Yeah. Anyway, so like Stilgar gets to lead the Fremen and Gurney gets to be an Earl, I think. And Paul is going to marry Irolan for the political uh, alliance piece. But he swears that she will have no more of me than my name, no child of mine, nor touch, nor softness of glance, nor instant of desire, which seems a little bit rough. And Jessica's like, well, she writes books, so she'll be fine probably. Which is, I think, a fair assessment of what writers need. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, you know. We don't need affection or love just to, you know, give us a room. Uh, which is, again, setting up those like bits that we see um, yeah. at the beginning of all these chapters of, of the story of Muad'Dib. And then the book ends on a line from Jessica to Chani about how even though they were both only concubines, history will call us wives. It, which struck me as a strange note for that mm-hmm. to be like the last line of the book. Yeah, you're right. But the, yeah, that's, and, and then we're done. And, and I would say, though, like, I mean, I think it's worth saying this about any work. When you're trying to do something really ambitious, yeah. you're taking a lot of risks. And if 80% of them pay off, you're doing really well. Yeah. And he was doing something really ambitious for 1965. Mm. And he was doing, like, this is, pos- like, I mean, you've got foundation and you've got this. Yes. And those are like the... I don't know of too many works in science fiction that were of epic scale Mm -hmm. in fantasy. You only had Tolkien at that point. So there wasn't a whole corpus of work on like, how do you do something this epic? Yes. And so for him to have a bit of a wobble on the landing, I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, you look pretty good. Yeah, no, fair, fair enough. But yeah, and this, and this, I think is a, like, how much does that diverge from the movie's Um, ending? Ish. So the the movie ending there there is also the knife fight. Um, <laughs> Got to have the knife fight. Yeah, except it's and I mentioned this to you when we were chatting earlier pre pod about mm. um, just the pacing in the movie it was really odd and really jarring. I found like they go from Paul riding worms and attacking the governor's palace and you know Baron Harkonnen being killed and goes flying because he he floats inexplicably yes, in the he film. Floats. I don't know if we touched on that, but. He does in the book, too, just because for the fat phobia to really take it to the next level, he's so obese that he can't walk on his own. Right, right. It's but the 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 way that it's done in the film, I think, is very funny. Just because there's there's something very humorous about the way he's flying around. Yeah. So anyway, the um, Paul's sister kills him. He goes flying out the window. Explosions start happening. They they take the city, and then it's just next scene. Very jarringly, they are in a room. Um, All of the Fremen are there with Paul uh, and his gang. The Emperor and his gang enters. Knife fight happens inexplicably. No real (laughs) explanation that I can recall for for why. Just that, ah, that man, he's a Harkonnen swine. I have to kill him, you know? Yeah, it's a little bit like that in the book, too. I mean, there's more to it because Mm -hmm. Gurney Halleck wanted revenge, but, you know, he's not a noble. Indeed, yeah. And then um, Paul kills him. It starts raining on Arrakis, and then Paul's little sister proclaims, uh, Paul truly is the Quizart's cataract. And then the movie ends. There's there's no epic music, no, no crescendo, no monologues, no they will remember, they will call us wives, none of that. Just Paul is the Quizart's cataract, arms open wide, 
Cut to credits. Um, <laughs> to, to be fair, though, that like as as Aaron and I were just saying, I mean, the book is has a bit of an ending like mm-hmm. that too, because it's difficult to do a political ending that feels conclusive totally. as well, right? It's like we just won sort mm-hmm. of thing. When somebody finally agrees with you, it can uh, yeah yeah. But anyway, <laughs> now that we've yes. gone through all of that, Whew. yeah, obviously, obviously, we we put we put some pins in some stuff to come back to. Um, I think the do, do, do we do we want to recommend that people read this book? Um, oh. I mean, yeah, I would say so. It's a it's a bit of a long one, but <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an interesting read. Yeah, as the guy who didn't read it, like uh, <laughs> it was definitely interesting, and it's I will one hundred percent recommend watching the nineteen eighty four adaptation. <laughs> oh yes, me too. <laughs> because despite my my rattling on against it, it was entertaining. Yes. Definitely entertaining. Well, that's, so. that's sort of my thing. I haven't seen the new movie. I kind yeah. of suspect that it's going to be less... It probably is a better movie than the 1984 movie, but I yeah. feel like it oh, might be... It sounds like it. It might yeah. be less entertaining, yeah. is my worry. Yeah. Oh, okay. But, yeah. I was going to say, if you're if anybody who hasn't read the book is going to read the book, uh, one of the things as I did my most recent listen to it was that I felt was, like, we don't do omniscient voice anymore. No. Like, we don't hop from one character's head to another we don't do these thought bubbles where somebody just suddenly stops and like in a comic book there's a thought bubble yeah and that was very much part of this book and and to be honest stylistically i felt it was very much like james mishner's uh, shogun which happened around the same time where people would stop and there would be a thought bubble or Mm. you know and then it would hop from character to character and these a lot of telling to the audience mm-hmm. and a lot of info dumps. So yeah. I, I think it is a, a product of its time, but I think there's a lot here. If you, you know, there's a lot here worth reading. Yeah, no, I would, I would agree. I think it's a, I like, I think it's an interesting book. It is just quite long. Just so just be prepared mm-hmm. for that, mm-hmm. for that piece. I think the most like pertinent, I guess, like, thematic elements to come back to is what you mentioned earlier, Derek, as like the white savior aspect of this narrative, <laughs> which I would argue, and I think I think Frank Herbert was fairly upfront about this in interviews and stuff, that he was like trying to deconstruct like the hero narrative, like the hero's journey mm-hmm. and and trying again with within his positioning to challenge or, or subvert sort of the white savior narrative. But I feel like his success at that mm-hmm. is perhaps up for some yeah. interpretation, perhaps. <laughs> I would, I would also say, too, as I was thinking about the white savior thing, it only occurred to me in this read mm. that Cheney is basically half white as well. Yes. Right? And so the one person he does stay with is like half white. So yes. I, I don't know what that does to the theme, but it uh, like it, it's there. And I think you're right. There is a bit of deconstruction. But at the same time, we live in a colonial or post-colonial yes. world. So, I mean, it's so inescapable. And, you know, the, the way it's distorted, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, global culture is economics and everything else and politics that it's hard for a single work even one much better than this to to deconstruct that yeah and and especially one that plays quite a bit of it very straight in in a lot of ways like paul is a very standard protagonist in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and like it ends and depending on your reading of it sort of a quote-unquote happy ending I guess like he succeeds in what he's trying to do and there's sort of this vague element of like okay a holy war is I guess going to happen at some point in the future which is bad but we don't see any of that so I think 
And, and my understanding is that the later books do more to kind of deconstruct that further and to talk about how like, actually what he was doing was probably not great. And like, the the whole empire situation is bad. Mm. But it's, I think, very easy to read Dune in a very straightforward way as like yeah. a, a very straightforward hero's journey. Indeed. Mm. Well, just you were talking earlier about how um, Herbert tried to like deconstruct or subvert the hero's journey. Mm. That's that's not what I got at all. Yeah. Just, just from, the, <laughs> from the movie, it was your textbook hero's journey. Mm-hmm. At, at least that's, again, maybe I didn't dig deep enough, but um, <laughs> but that's that's kind of what I gleaned from it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, Paul, kind of this young upstart, father dies, thrust into a position of (laughs) of authority and decision-making, starts to lead a big group of people, wins a war. I I think, too, there's a certain amount of, if you look at the really old science fiction, like the pulp Mm -hmm. era science fiction, a lot of it, like if you take a look at it through a lens of, is this a teenager's power fantasy? Mm Yeah. Right? The teenager always knows more than all the adults. The teenager knows what to do, blah, blah, blah. Like there's a lot of that mm-hmm. in here as well. Yeah. And and I mean, it's sort of mitigated by having the mom <laughs> know more than him. Yeah. And so the mom is going on the journey with him. But at the same time, there's lots of places where he's the only one who can act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's better than everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, I would argue that this is mitigated a bit by the fact that I don't think that his powers are portrayed as desirable a lot of the time. Like, he's pretty clearly freaked out by a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like a lot of it is not ideal. But at the same time, he still ends the novel you know, as a messianic figure in charge of all kinds of stuff with, you know, a hot girlfriend and a princess wife and... Literally. Yeah, yeah. like, which again, I think if you're looking at it as like teenage boy fantasy, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it falls into that quite a bit, quite a large degree. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you've got a knife fighting girlfriend and the tall blonde wife. Yeah, pretty much. Bingo. (laughs) What what more can you want in life? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I also think it was just kind of interesting I didn't really pick up too much on this when watching the film, but the the differences in the the role of, of women and the role of men as the I'm sorry, what were the the space nuns? Oh, the uh, Bene Gesserit. Yes, the fact that like uh, they refer to it in the movie as um, the the place where women are terrified and can never see or can never go. Like they use oh, that they use that expression to dis- if that's in the book. yeah to describe the fact that they can never see the Y chromosome. I I don't know. Like again, yeah. I did I didn't read it, but <laughs> it, it appears in the book a little. Okay. Yeah. I think we have to take the gender roles, like the whole thing mm-hmm. together. Like, and so we add that to okay, the women do have a lot mm-hmm. of agency. Yeah. Cheney is is like super competent mm-hmm. all the time. Cheney is, and she's sacrificing for all the right heroic mm-hmm. reasons. Jessica has a super amount of agency. Mm-hmm. At the end, Princess Aralon is the one who persuades her father that yes. this is the way mm-hmm. to do it. So, I mean, the women have some some important agency that I don't think they had in all other yes. pieces of literature of the 60s. Yeah. yeah. It, it's really just the duality of it that, yeah. that really struck yeah. me in mm-hmm. this retelling. You know, it's, it almost uh, gave me Ursula Le Guin vibes, you know, the, bit, the yeah. other side type of thing, right? Like Paul can access the all the other memories, that, that kind of... Mm-hmm. Sorry, you were saying it's, there, it's, there. It's, it's interesting that you bring up Ursula Le Guin because she's a contemporary mm-hmm. as well, right? I mean, some of her major works were 68... 
72 sort of thing. And so very much uh, same period. Yeah. And obviously like coming from some different, and we talked, I think about sort of the colonialism aspect of left hand of darkness, which Mm -hmm. kind of goes unexamined, which is interesting in a book that examines so much of like gender and sex and how we understand society through those lenses. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, like it, I, the book is definitely trying to do a lot of interesting things. Mm-hmm. You you do ultimately end up with sort of the the Fremen who are very coded Muslim mm-hmm. and who are sort of noble savages in that sort of trope, which is that that part has aged not great, mm-hmm. even as much as it seemed. I think Herbert was trying to kind of challenge that aspect. There's a, a writer, uh, Harris Durrani. I think, uh, who's written some interesting tweets and blog posts about this, which I would recommend anyone listening check out if they're interested in that topic. (laughs) I I think, too, that that's that sort of the noble savage trope. Like, it goes, like, it's Edgar Rice Burroughs with his Barsoom series, with his Tarzan series, like, very much into that as Mm -hmm. well. And, you know, sought to portray people, like, some cultures in a positive light, but at the same time, you know, Burroughs was believed that eugenics was sort of obvious. Like, why wouldn't you apply the same yeah. sort of techniques that you apply to your crops to your people? And and this whole idea of of engineering people is very, very much like that's oh, yeah. front and center of this book. I don't know if though it's framed, I don't believe it's framed as perfecting something so much as making a Superman. Yes. Yeah. Which is a different sort of outcome, right? Because mm-hmm. eugenics movement was, it had its own things, but building the Superman was a little different. Yeah. Like there's the, the Benny Jesuit are not necessarily trying to make like a perfect population of mm. Kwisatz Haderachs. They're, they're trying to make one to do mm-hmm. something? I'm not entirely sure that I understand why they want to do it. <laughs> I don't know why they do it. And and I love the line that, you know, Paul later on says, like, I'm not at all what you expected. And you guys, are, like, basically, you guys are really going to regret this. Yeah, because there's, you know, they, they still are missing the, the agency piece of that. Right. Um, <laughs> and and like you said, I am I am interested in reading the follow up novels, because I from what I've heard, they go into some of this stuff a lot more interestingly and a lot more in depth. I think his son becomes a, a, a part sandworm. Oh, at neat. some point, okay. um, I got a little bit lost on the Dune Wiki when I sure. was preparing for this. So I, I didn't, I didn't go that far, but I did ask Adam Shafto, <laughs> "Should I read more Dune mm-hmm. books? Should I stay at just one?" And he said that you know the the subsequent novels are not as good, but I, I think I would still like to try. It's, yeah, I like I said, I've heard. I feel like my dad has said that he did not enjoy the subsequent novels as much. Mm-hmm. They seem very wild, mm-hmm. from what I what from what little little I have learned. As I got lost in the Dune wiki, the the main takeaway I have is that that Paul's son Leto becomes a mm-hmm. part sandworm person, okay. um, and also a god emperor. I think huh. uh, that's one of the titles. Yes, yes, it is. Interesting. Okay, question because this was fully revealed in the movie but i didn't quite understand how the the worms create the spice yeah it's a byproduct of their metabolism i believe yes. okay interesting so is that is that in this book or is that in the next yeah book? is that so. just okay interesting so it's a it's a reveal that some combination of the biochemistry of the planet catalyzed by the worm or some larval shape of the worm ends up making the spice interesting. Mm-hmm. okay cool Yes, I do. I do recall that as well. Because I did want to say, if you've not read the book, but you 
seen the movie, one of the things that you will have lost is Herbert was really clear that Cheney is an elf. Okay. Over and over and over, like elf and face, elf yeah. and face, as if like, yeah. So like the D&D metaphors were like real. <laughs> and I don't think the movie did justice to her being No, an elf. no, not at yeah. all. And, and for the record, by the way, I wanted to mention this earlier. You keep mentioning about how uh, Patrick Stewart's character is a bard. I'm also a bard. In D and D, surprising no one. Oh, yeah. Bard is my class, but oh, that's funny. Anyway, we're off the rails. Um, so, no that that half half elf comment was the one I wanted to make sure we got to before the podcast ended because I think totally. that was yes. one of the important thematic elements of the book. Yeah, she she kind of has like there's there's a bit of an Arwen if we're gonna keep to the Tolkien comparisons a little bit. There is an Arwen esque element to her mm. in how she is portrayed i would say although she's brunette is she not well Ar- arwen is a brunette is she i thought all of the elves were blondies uh, my my memory of how anyone is described of the, in the books of lord of the rings might have been completely obliterated by the movie adaptation fair enough. fair enough in the movie arwen is a brunette I didn't watch the movies. Oh, I watched the first the one. Movies. Oh my God, really? No, no, I read the books and I was like, these, what the movies did is they took all of the stuff that I really loved and they excluded it, like the deep sort of nostalgia. Fair enough. And then they added in a bunch of special effects that you, and, and the pacing that you'd see in a kaiju movie. Or Fair, enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Not a fan of, of what's that? Peter, Peter Jackson? Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson's adaptation. Yeah. That's well, One day maybe I'll watch it like when I'm with a friend or drunk or something yeah. like they're fun to marathon if you have I like a whole them. day yeah, yeah. <laughs> a 16 hour uh binge yeah do yeah. it yeah i do mean you gotta watch the extended versions obviously because those are the best ones yeah. but uh, anyway um, way off the rails that is entirely <laughs> off topic speaking of sort of things that we wanted to get to before the podcast ends is there anything else that anyone wanted to discuss right. before we bring this to a close um okay i had a question for for each of you actually and and derek you are perfectly primed to answer this because you just finished the the audiobook were you satisfied with with the ending like did did the knife fight kind of <laughs> undercut the the climax as you were alluding to earlier uh, were you satisfied with the book as a whole did it leave you wanting more go ahead uh, I think in 2021, it's a, an A- experience. Sure. <laughs> I think it's a good book. I think if I was reading it in 1965, it would be an A-plus experience. Right. And I think obviously literature has moved on, mm-hmm. the way we look at culture, the way we look at different you know kinds of people has moved yeah. on. I think there, this book still has a lot to offer. Mm-hmm. I'm not someone who insists categorically that, oh my God, you must read the classics. There's a reason there, you know, there are new classics being written and published right now. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there are a lot of books who that, that can do other things. But I mean, if you're curious and you've got 20 hours um, <laughs> to listen to an audiobook, then, you know, this is not a bad thing. Okay. Yeah. Noted. Aaron? No, I would I would agree. Um and, and part of the reason I wanted to bring you on, Derek, was to like I read Dune for the first time a couple of years ago, I think, maybe four years ago now. And like that piece I think was the one that was missing a little bit because I've read more recent science fiction and so there was a sense of like, oh I've I've seen this done 
not necessarily better, but like more recently. And like, I've seen people do things with some of these concepts more in depth or like, yeah, done, done newer things with some of this stuff that like doesn't invalidate what Dune was doing, but just took away maybe some of that sense of newness that people would have had when reading this in 1965 or like in, in years since. And so I, I wanted to bring you on because I feel like you have a more um, like a more rounded experience of science fiction and, and I would say that I also enjoyed the book more on rereading it okay. than on reading it the first time maybe yeah but yeah I would I would say that there definitely is still stuff to be found yeah. in it that is that is interesting and satisfying even though the ending is a little bit it's a little bit odd <laughs> a little wonky fair enough and, and just to your point about rereading it how you enjoyed it much mm-hmm. more after that I enjoy the movie in retrospect, uh, <laughs> uh, having been walked through the plot of the book. So mm. there you go. <laughs> yeah. And Derek, anything anything else you wanted to get to or discuss about Dune before we? No, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, no, I'm, thank you. I'm, I'm glad. It, I, I've also had fun. This it's has been good. awesome. <laughs> yeah, and thank you for your insights and and your assistance in understanding the the convoluted aspects of Dune. We should we should take off that that polish of expert though, like. There's plenty of stuff I may have said thinking it's true, and I say it with, with emph- emphatic certainty. I may be totally wrong. So uh, there's all of that. Well, when I am when I am editing the podcast, I will make sure I take out any references to expertise. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Sounds good. Uh, Not even the whole sentence, just just the word. Yeah, just, just the, the word. I'll just blur. Just beep it out. <laughs> beep yeah. that out, and the thing else will change. Yeah. Uh, Super. But um, well, this yeah. has been lovely. This has uh, been great. Should we should we do the thing? I mean, I don't know what we're reading next. Okay, so that, oh, we, we can't well, do that part. Well, we can do the rest. Um, um, so we're skipping the introduction for the next book and going right on to if you've enjoyed listening and presumably you have since you made it all the way to the end, please leave a rating, thumbs up, like, or subscribe depending on your respective podcast streaming platform. You can find all of our episodes on Buzzsprout as the Brodacious Book Club and you can reach us at brodaciousbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as uh, at Book Brodacious or just search for Brodacious Book Club. And um, thank you, Derek, so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Yeah, this has been so much fun. Such a treat. It has been. It's lovely. We we have not done this in a while either. It's been I know. a while since you and I have been I in person together. It. I missed it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I go read Derek's books if you haven't. They're great. Yeah, do you want to do a plug? Yeah. Real quick. Like go ahead, please. Uh my my first book is The Quantum Magician. Mm-hmm. And I also have a new duology that's out called The House of Sticks. Mm-hmm. The fir- that's the first novel. They're available anywhere books are sold. And uh, yeah, happy if people want to check them out and shoot a tweet at me. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. You want to drop your Twitter handle? It's it's No, it's just my name, at Derek, D-E-R-E-K. And then my last name, which has seven letters, K-U-N-S. K-E-N. I'm, I'm pretty findable on. on uh, <laughs> Fantastic. For a second, I thought you were going to say it's just at Derek. And I was like, wow, that's, how did you get that? <laughs> Power move. <Yeah. laughs> okay. Oh, well, funny. lovely. I've been Aaron Rockford. I'm on Twitter at Pineapple Fury. 
And I'm Matt Thomas, and you can reach me at msthomas95. And um, I, do we have a tagline from um, this book to end things on? We usually like to end things on like a tagline, like if there's a quote from the book or anything that's like yeah, uh, particularly good, but I don't. Oh, fear is the mind killer. Oh, yes. good one. Excellent. There it is. How, how do we not think of that? I apologize for future me for clapping. Yeah. <laughs> fear is the mind killer. Well done. Great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and record. Record.